0: Volume 1, Section 18 of The Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Peary. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Volume 1, Section 18. The grande vacance began soon after the date of this letter, when she was left in the great deserted pensionnat with only one teacher for a companion. This teacher, a Frenchwoman, had always been uncongenial to her, but, left to each other's sole companionship, Charlotte soon discovered that her associate was more profligate, more steeped in a kind of cold, systematic sensuality, than she had before imagined it possible for a human being to be and her whole nature revolted from this woman's society. A low, nervous fever was gaining upon Miss Bronte. She had never been a good sleeper, but now she could not sleep at all. Whatever had been disagreeable or obnoxious to her during the day was presented when it was over with exaggerated vividness to her disordered fancy. There were causes for distress and anxiety in the news from home, particularly as regarded Branwell. In the dead of the night, lying awake at the end of the long-deserted dormitory in the vast and silent house, every fear respecting those whom she loved and who were so far off in another country became a terrible reality, oppressing her and choking up the very life-blood in her heart. Those nights were times of sick, "'dreary, wakeful misery, precursors of many such in after years. "'In the daytime, driven abroad by loathing of her companion "'and by the weak restlessness of fever, "'she tried to walk herself into such a state of bodily fatigue "'as would induce sleep. "'So she went out, and with weary steps "'would traverse the boulevards and the streets, "'sometimes for hours together.' faltering and resting occasionally on some of the many benches placed for the repose of happy groups, or for solitary wanderers like herself. Then up again, anywhere but to the pensionnat, out to the cemetery where Martha lay, out beyond it, to the hills, whence there is nothing to be seen but fields as far as a horizon. The shades of evening made her retrace her footsteps, sick for want of food, but not hungry fatigued with long-continued exercise, yet restless still, and doomed to another weary haunted night of sleeplessness. She would thread the streets in the neighborhood of the Rue d'Isabelle, and yet avoid it and its occupant till as late an hour as she dared be out. At last she was compelled to keep her bed for some days, and this compulsory rest did her good. She was weak but less depressed in spirits than she had been when the school reopened, and her positive, practical duties recommenced. She writes thus. October thirteenth, 1843 Mary is getting on well, as she deserves to do. I often hear from her. Her letters and yours are one of my few pleasures. She urges me very much to leave Brussels and to go to her, but at present— However tempted to take such a step, I should not feel justified in doing so. To leave a certainty for a complete uncertainty would be to the last degree imprudent. Notwithstanding that, Brussels is indeed desolate to me now. Since the D's left, I have had no friend. I had indeed some very kind acquaintances in the family of a Dr. Blank. But they too are gone now they left in the latter part of august and i am completely alone i cannot count the belgians anything it is a curious position to be so utterly solitary in the midst of numbers sometimes the solitude oppresses me to an excess one day lately i felt as if i could bear it no longer and i went to madame Heger and gave her notice if it had depended on her I should certainly have soon been at liberty, but M. Heger, having heard of what was in agitation, sent for me the day after, and pronounced with vehemence his decision that I should not leave. I could not at that time have persevered in my intention without exciting him to anger, so I promised to stay a little while longer. How long that will be I do not know. I should not like to return to England to do nothing. I am too old for that now. But if I could hear of a favorable opportunity for commencing a school, I think I should embrace it. We have as yet no fires here, and I suffer much from cold. Otherwise I am well in health. Mr. Blank will take this letter to England." He is a pretty-looking and pretty-behaved young man, apparently constructed without a backbone, by which I don't allude to his corporal spine, which is all right enough, but to his character. I get on here after a fashion, but now that Mary D has left Brussels I have nobody to speak to, for I count the Belgians as nothing. Sometimes I ask myself how long shall I stay here, but as yet I have only asked the question. I have not answered it. However, when I have acquired as much German as I think fit, I think I shall pack up bag and baggage and depart. Twinges of homesickness cut me to the heart every now and then. Today the weather is glaring, and I am stupefied with a bad cold and headache. I have nothing to tell you. One day is like another in this place." I know you, living in the country, can hardly believe it is possible life can be monotonous in the centre of a brilliant capital like Brussels, but so it is. I feel it most on holidays when all the girls and teachers go out to visit, and it sometimes happens that I am left, during several hours, quite alone, with four great desolate schoolrooms at my disposition. I try to read, I try to write, but in vain. I then wander about from room to room, but the silence and loneliness of all the house weighs down one's spirits like lead. You will hardly believe that Madame Heger, good and kind as I have described her, never comes near me on these occasions. I own, I was astonished the first time I was left alone thus, when everybody else was enjoying the pleasures of a fête day with their friends, and she knew I was quite by myself, and never took the least notice of me yet i understand she praises me very much to everybody and says what excellent lessons i give she is not colder to me than she is to the other teachers but they are less dependent on her than i am they have relations and acquaintances in Brussels. you remember the letter she wrote me when i was in england how kind and affectionate that was is it not odd in the meantime The complaints I make at present are a sort of relief which I permit myself. In all other respects I am well satisfied with my position, and you may say so to people who inquire after me, if anyone does. Write to me, dear, whenever you can. You do a good deed when you send me a letter, for you comfort a very desolate heart.' One of the reasons for the silent estrangement between Madame Heger and Miss Bronte in the second year of her residence at Brussels is to be found in the fact that the English Protestants' dislike of Romanism increased with her knowledge of it, and its effects upon those who professed it. And when occasion called for an expression of opinion from Charlotte Bronte, she was uncompromising truth. Madame heger on the opposite side was not merely a Roman Catholic, she was devote. Not of a warm or impulsive temperament, she was naturally governed by her conscience rather than by her affections. And her conscience was in the hands of her religious guides. She considered any slight thrown upon her church as blasphemy against the holy truth, and though she was not given to open expression of her thoughts and feelings, Yet her increasing coolness of behavior showed how much her most cherished opinions had been wounded. Thus, although there was never any explanation of Madame Heger's change of manner, this may be given as one great reason why, about this time, Charlotte was made painfully conscious of a silent estrangement between them, an estrangement of which perhaps the former was hardly aware. I have before alluded to intelligence from home calculated to distress Charlotte exceedingly with fears respecting Branwell, which I shall speak of more at large when the realization of her worst apprehensions came to affect the daily life of herself and her sisters. I allude to the subject again here in order that the reader may remember the gnawing private cares which she had to bury in her own heart and the pain of which could only be smothered for a time under the diligent fulfilment of present duty. Another dim sorrow was faintly perceived at this time. Her father's eyesight began to fail. It was not unlikely that he might shortly become blind. More of his duty must devolve on a curate, and Mr. Bronte, always liberal, would have to pay at a higher rate than he had heretofore done for this assistance. She wrote thus to Emily. December 1st, 1843 This is Sunday morning. They are at their idolatrous mess, and I am here, that is, in the refectoire. I should like uncommonly to be in the dining-room at home, or in the kitchen, or in the back kitchen. I should like even to be cutting up the hash with the clerk and some register people at the other table, and you standing by, watching that I put enough flour, not too much pepper, and above all that I save the best pieces of the leg of mutton for tiger and keeper, the first of which personages would be jumping about the dish and carving-knife, and the latter standing like a devouring flame on the kitchen floor to complete the picture tabby blowing the fire in order to boil the potatoes to a sort of vegetable glue how divine are these recollections to me at this moment yet i have no thought of coming home just now i lack a real pretext for doing so it is true this place is dismal to me but i cannot go home without a fixed prospect when i get there and this prospect must not be a situation That would be jumping out of the frying-pan into the fire. You call yourself idle? Absurd, absurd. Is Papa well? Are you well? And Tabby? You ask about Queen Victoria's visit to Brussels. I saw her for an instant flashing through the Rue Royale in a carriage and six, surrounded by soldiers. She was laughing and talking very gaily. She looked a little stout, vivacious lady very plainly dressed, not much dignity or pretension about her. The Belgians liked her very well on the whole. They said she enlivened the sombre court of King Leopold, which is usually as gloomy as a conventicle. Write to me again soon. Tell me whether Papa really wants me very much to come home, and whether you do likewise. I have an idea that I should be of no use there, a sort of aged person upon the parish." I pray with heart and soul that all may continue well at Haworth, above all in our gray, half-inhabited house. God bless the walls thereof. Safety, health, happiness, and prosperity to you, Papa and Tabby. Amen. C.B. Towards the end of this year, 1843, various reasons conspired with the causes of anxiety which have been mentioned to make her feel that her presence was absolutely and imperatively required at home, while she had acquired all that she proposed to herself in coming to Brussels the second time, and was, moreover, no longer regarded with the former kindliness of feeling by Madame Hégé. In consequence of the state of things, working down with a sharp edge into a sensitive mind, she suddenly announced to that lady her immediate intention of returning to England both monsieur and madame heger agreed that it would be for the best when they learnt only that part of the case which she could reveal to them namely mr Bronte's increasing blindness but as the inevitable moment of separation from people and places among which she had spent so many happy hours drew near her spirits gave way she had the natural presentiment that she saw them all for the last time and she received but a dead kind of comfort from being reminded by her friends that brussels and haworth were not so very far apart that access from one place to the other was not so difficult or impracticable as her tears would seem to predicate nay there was some talk of one of madame eg's daughters being sent to her as a pupil if she fulfilled her intention of trying to begin a school to facilitate her success in this plan, should she ever engage in it, M. Eger gave her a kind of diploma, dated from and sealed with the seal of the Athénée Royal de Bruxelles, certifying that she was perfectly capable of teaching the French language, having well studied the grammar and composition thereof, and moreover having prepared herself for teaching by studying and practicing the best methods of instruction. This certificate is dated December twenty ninth, 1843 and on the second of january eighteen forty four she arrived at haworth on the twenty third of the month she writes as follows every one asks me what i am going to do now that i am returned home and every one seems to expect that i should immediately commence a school In truth, it is what I should wish to do. I desire it above all things. I have sufficient money for the undertaking, and I hope now sufficient qualifications to give me a fair chance of success. Yet I cannot yet permit myself to enter upon life, to touch the object which seems now within my reach, and which I have been so long straining to attain. You will ask me why. It is on Papa's account.' He is now, as you know, getting old, and it grieves me to tell you that he is losing his sight. I have felt for some months that I ought not to be away from him, and I feel now that it would be too selfish to leave him, at at least as long as Branwell and Anne are absent, in order to pursue selfish interests of my own. With the help of God I will try to deny myself in this matter, and to wait. I suffered much before I left Brussels. I think, however long I live, I shall not forget what the parting with M. Eger cost me. It grieved me so much to grieve him, who has been so true, kind, and disinterested a friend. At parting he gave me a kind of diploma certifying my abilities as a teacher, sealed with the seal of the Atene Royal, of which he is professor. I was surprised also at the degree of regret expressed by my Belgian pupils. When they knew i was going to leave i did not think it had been in their phlegmatic nature i do not know whether you feel as i do but there are times now when it appears to me as if all my ideas and feelings except a few friendships and affections are changed from what they used to be something in me which used to be enthusiasm is tamed down and broken i have fewer illusions What I wish for now is active exertion, a stake in life. Haworth seems such a lonely, quiet spot, buried away from the world. I no longer regard myself as young. Indeed, I shall soon be twenty-eight, and it seems as if I ought to be working and braving the rough realities of the world, as other people do. It is, however, my duty to restrain this feeling at present and I will endeavour to do so. Of course her absent sister and brother obtained a holiday to welcome her return home, and in a few weeks she was spared to pay a visit to her friend at B. But she was far from well or strong, and the short journey of fourteen miles seems to have fatigued her greatly. Soon after she came back to Haworth, in a letter to one of the household in which she had been staying, there occurs this passage. Our poor little cat has been ill two days and is just dead. It is piteous to see even an animal lying lifeless. Emily is sorry. These few words relate to points in the characters of the two sisters which I must dwell upon a little charlotte was more than commonly tender in her treatment of all dumb creatures and they with that fine instinct so often noticed were invariably attracted towards her the deep and exaggerated consciousness of her personal defects the constitutional absence of hope which made her slow to trust in human affection and consequently slow to respond to any manifestation of it made her manner shy and constrained to men and women and even to children we have seen something of this trembling distrust of her own capability of inspiring affection in the grateful surprise she expresses at the regret felt by her belgian pupils at her departure But not merely were her actions kind, her words and tones were ever gentle and caressing towards animals, and she quickly noticed the least want of care or tenderness on the part of others towards any poor brute creature. The readers of Shirley may remember that it is one of the tests which the heroine applies to her lover. "'Do you know what soothsayers I would consult?' the little Irish beggar that comes barefoot to my door, the mouse that steals out of the cranny in my wainscot, the bird in frost and snow that pecks at my window for a crumb, the dog that licks my hand and sits beside my knee. I know somebody to whose knee the black cat loves to climb, against whose shoulder and cheek it likes to purr. The old dog always comes out of his kennel and wags his tail and whines affectionately when somebody passes. For somebody and he, read Charlotte Bronte, and she. He quietly strokes the cat and lets her sit while he conveniently can, and when he must disturb her by rising, he puts her softly down and never flings her from him roughly. He always whistles to the dog and gives him a caress. The feeling, which in Charlotte partook of something of the nature of an affection, was, with Emily, more of a passion. Someone speaking of her to me, in a careless kind of strength of expression, said, She never showed regard to any human creature. All her love was reserved for animals. The helplessness of an animal was its passport to Charlotte's heart. The fierce Wild intractability of its nature was what often recommended it to Emily. Speaking of her dead sister, the former told me that from her many traits in Shirley's character were taken. Her way of sitting on the rug reading, with her arm round her rough bulldog's neck. Her calling to a strange dog running past with hanging head and lolling tongue to give it a merciful draught of water— its maddened snap at her her nobly stern presence of mind going right into the kitchen and taking up one of tabby's red-hot italian irons to sear the bitten place and telling no one till the danger was well-nigh over for fear of the terrors that might beset their weaker minds all this looked upon as a well-invented fiction in Shirley, was written down by charlotte with streaming eyes it was the literal true account of what Emily had done. The same tawny bulldog, with his strangled whistle, called Tartar in Shirley, was Keeper in Hallworth Parsonage, a gift to Emily. With the gift came a warning. Keeper was faithful to the depths of his nature as long as he was with friends, but he who struck him with a stick or whip roused the relentless nature of the brute who flew at his throat forthwith and held him there till one or the other was at the point of death now keeper's household fault was this he loved to steal upstairs and stretch his square tawny limbs on the comfortable beds covered over with delicate white counterpanes but the cleanliness of the parsonage arrangements was perfect and this habit of keepers was so objectionable that emily in reply to tabby's remonstrances declared that if he was found again transgressing she herself in defiance of warning and his well-known ferocity of nature would beat him so severely that he would never offend again in the gathering dusk of an autumn evening tabby came half triumphantly half tremblingly, but in great wrath, to tell Emily that Keeper was lying on the best bed in drowsy voluptuousness. Charlotte saw Emily's whitening face and set mouth, but dared not speak to interfere. No one dared when Emily's eyes glowed in that manner out of the paleness of her face, and when her lips were so compressed into stone. She went upstairs, and Tabby and Charlotte stood in the gloomy passage below, full of the dark shadows of coming night. Downstairs came Emily, dragging after her the unwilling keeper, his hind legs set in a heavy attitude of resistance, held by the scuft of his neck, but growling low and savagely all the time. The watchers would fain have spoken, but durst not for fear of taking off Emily's attention and causing her to avert her head for a moment from the enraged brute. She let him go, planted in a dark corner at the bottom of the stairs. No time was there to fetch stick or rod for fear of the strangling clutch at her throat. Her bare, clenched fist struck against his red, fierce eyes— before he had time to make his spring, and in the language of the turf she punished him till his eyes were swelled up, and the half-blind, stupefied beast was led to his accustomed lair to have his swollen head fomented and cared for by the very Emily herself. The generous dog owed her no grudge. He loved her dearly ever after. He walked first among the mourners to her funeral he slept moaning for nights at the door of her empty room, and never, so to speak, rejoiced dog-fashion after her death. He, in his turn, was mourned over by the surviving sister. Let us somehow hope, in half-red Indian creed, that he follows Emily now, and when he rests, sleeps on some soft white bed of dreams unpunished when he awakens to the life of the land of shadows. Now we can understand the force of the words, Our poor little cat is dead. Emily is sorry. End of section eighteen.